Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully for History 340. Uh, doing the lecture for this week. Doing the lecture for this week. Uh, this week is the Patriot. This week is the Patriot. Um, I was going to show some clips, but uh, I'm not going to show them right now. Uh, maybe I'll add them to the, uh, to the Moodle later on. Um, this movie, if you haven't already seen it, I wouldn't really recommend it. It's not great cinema by any stretch of the imagination. Yet when I thought about making this class, this was the first movie that I thought of, mainly for just how it subverts stuff and how it really is reflective of when it was made, not necessarily the history. Uh, there is no, uh, there is a podcast, I'm recording it right now, there is no PowerPoint for this week. There is no PowerPoint for this week. Um, like I said, I'll probably put a couple clips up on Moodle. Maybe do a written response or something to it. Might be a fun thing to do. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about the American Revolution, talking about the Patriot, 2000's The Patriot. Um, we're going to condense the class some a little bit too. We're going to condense the class a little bit, uh, a little bit too. Uh, probably reduce a couple of the movies just because, you know, we had this big horrible storm. So we might, we might reduce a few of the things or, uh, you know, maybe get rid of a couple of assignments. So we'll see. But when we last left, uh, we were talking about the Crucible. We're talking about the Crucible, we're talking about the late Puritan era. Um, well, high point of the Puritan era, I should say. And so this is about 100 years difference, 100 years in spare change, less than 100 years, honestly, between the Crucible and um, the American Revolution. And a lot of things change. A lot of things change in the time period between the Crucible and 1776 American Revolution. Uh, a thing I alluded to that would happen that was happening during the Crucible, as opposed to um, Pocahontas, and actually it got even better, was mortality rates kept going down and down. Uh, mortality rates kept lowering and lowering. Um, you know, life expectancy in the New World became pretty similar to life expectancy in the Old World. Um, you know, life expectancy was 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 akin, was fairly similar. Uh, so that whole instant death thing that we talked about, like basically, you know, a million ways to die in the new world, doesn't really occur as much anymore, not much as an immediate threat. Uh, likewise, the profits kept rising. The profits kept rising. Uh, the F profits, not the PH profits. Um, we are talking about religion in a second, but we're talking about money right now. New world becomes a lot more profitable. New world becomes a lot more profitable. Uh, the colonies become more than self-sustaining. Most of the colonies become more than self-sustaining. They're actually uh, making profits. They're making tons of money for everybody involved, for the companies, for the people doing it, for the government and taxes. Uh, profits keep go rising and rising. Uh, new World is becoming more and more successful, mainly because they started getting new crops uh, and new markets start opening up. Uh, the population also increases heavily. The population become, uh, starts increasing uh, quite heavily, quite heavily in this time period because mortality rates are going lower. Uh, the number of women keeps increasing. Uh, with the number of women increasing, women actually start to lose some of that political and uh, economic autonomy they had before. But still, the populations get higher and higher. Mortality rates are lower and lower. Widows aren't as, uh, as, as economically prosperous as they once were. You know, because husbands are living longer. And also, Native Americans are viewed as less of an imminent threat. And uh, I, if I was in class right now, I'd put threat in quotation marks. Uh, they're still viewed as something to be a little bit wary of, but not like, oh my god, these are Satan's minions who are like, you know, leading us to perdition. Uh, it's a little bit sadder now. Like, they, they view them a bit more tragically, a bit lesser, a bit more of like the, a uh, bit more childlike, I should say. Um, more of a, what's the word I'm looking for here? F not fraction of a human, but, you know, but before uh, Native Americans were viewed as mainly more alien, now they're viewed as just a lesser individual, a lesser number. Uh, something like King Philip's War, which granted King Philip War does happen before the uh, American, sorry, before the Crucible. Uh, King Philip War is basically... Metatomic, he is also known as King Philip. He's an Indian leader in New England. Basically, he tries to raise rebellion against the New Englanders, the white people. Uh, for some of the word war is really used with the Native Americans. There's a great book called The Name of War, which basically talks about how, you know, using the term war uh, denotes something about the people that are being fought against. But however, the rebellion was put down. Uh, you know, the, the Native Americans are no longer viewed as a military threat. Uh, they're no longer viewed as like, hey, they're going to kill us in a given second. 
that whole Aaron in the wilderness thing, it's still around to an extent, but there's still, the wilderness is becoming tamed, shall we say. It's becoming safer. Uh, the colonies are definitely becoming, quote unquote, wider. Um, Native Americans are being pushed further and further west out of the immediate area. You know, land that had previously been reserved for the Native Americans is now being pushed more and more westward as the uh, New Englanders, uh, the middle colony people and the southern colony people, uh, they are feeling a bit safer and they're feeling a bit more ingrained into it. Another thing that really rises is slavery. Slavery becomes ingrained as the labor system to keep things profitable. Uh, New England colonies, they don't have too much slavery. They have some slavery. Never get it twisted. There are definitely slaves all over the United States, even in Maine. Well, Maine's just a colony, uh, not a colony, a territory of Massachusetts, but you know, Maine's about as far north as you can go. They got slaves. Not a ton, but they have slaves. Uh, slavery keeps things profitable, all right? The New England colonies, they're pretty self-sustaining. Uh, they're pretty self-sustaining. They don't make a ton of money. They make decent profits in things like whaling and timber. Uh, they're not making stupid money. I mean, in New England, a lot of the times it's just the onus on the, the village, on the, um, on the collective. They're making enough to survive, maybe a little bit more in something like timber or, or whaling. The big money, though, is coming from the South. Uh, the southern colonies quickly become the most profitable colonies. Uh, they're the ones that have plantation systems. They're the ones that use slave labor. Uh, slave labor really only makes sense if you're making big profits and pr um, if you are, if the price of labor would be an issue in something like a plantation. Uh, in New England, slavery is typically not very economically viable because of the religious aspect, but also because of the kind of stuff they're growing. Uh, timber, don't, you don't really need a plantation. You need loggers. Uh, whaling, you don't really need slaves to work it. You need whalers. Uh, you know, if you're just making enough food for your own little village, you know, because the soil in New England, well, the, the temperature in New England's a little bit colder, uh, you're not growing as much stuff, not as lush, you're pretty much only doing, you know, sustenance farming, which is basically farming for food. Uh, that's not the case in the South. The South has all sorts of things like rice, indigo. Uh, the big cash crop is tobacco, though. The big cash crop is tobacco. Tobacco is not a necessary substance, as we talked about before. Uh, all these are very labor-intensive crops. Uh, they have very different ways of having their slaves, particularly rice plantations. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second with the Gullah people of South, um, South Carolina. Uh... Also, you do need to know that cotton really isn't around yet. Cotton really isn't around yet. Uh, cotton is not a major crop in this time period. Uh, they become the reason why Britain keeps the colonies. Uh, if it was just like the New England colonies, Britain probably wouldn't be putting that much time or energy or emphasis on, upon the colonies. But they're making tons of money off of rice, indigo, and particularly tobacco. Uh, they're making, like, buku bucks off of tobacco. And because tobacco is such labor-intensive, um, they need slaves. Well, need is a very, <laughs> you don't need slaves, but they feel that they need slavery. Uh, after the mess that was Bacon's Rebellion, we talked about Bacon's Rebellion last class in person, where basically the uh, indentureds and the uh, slaves start coming together, they start wanting to have a perpetual underclass, a perpetual underclass with no chance of economic elevation, no chance of societal uplift. Uh, no chance for social mobility. Remember, that's uh, that's one of the reasons why they're able to get so many people here at first is they have social mobility. But now that the mortality rate has gone down, they need to have a perpetual underclass. And slavery was viewed as the way to do it. Uh, slave mortality also goes down. Um, you should also think about that. You know, with the early indentured servant contracts, most people don't make it seven years. It's not that common for an uh, indentured servant to make it their full seven-year term. Uh, and the mortality rate was much lower, sorry, much higher for slaves. Um, we're not going to get too much into slavery in this class, so I'll just tell you a few little things about slavery to, to think about with that. Uh, a big thing is basically uh, slaves fresh off the boat from Africa were not viewed as very desirable uh, because they were viewed as um, more likely to die. They, they were, you know, too, they were quote-unquote unbroken. They were, you know, remained too much of their native beliefs. Um, something like a Creole, which is, I know we use the word Creole for a lot of different things, but basically somebody who was born in the New World, like somebody who was born in Haiti, or, oh, San Domingo, uh, 
or somebody who was born in Cuba or maybe in another part of the Caribbean where they've had slavery for quite a bit longer, they're more likely to already be adapted to the, uh, to the climate, have the immunities. They're more likely to live. And so once the mortality rate starts going down for everybody, um, slavery becomes a much more reasonable economic prospect for the slave owner. Uh, you know, an indentured servant is fairly cheap, but you may not get seven years of labor out of them. Now, once, you know, you're guaranteed to live more than seven years, and that slave might live 20, 30, 40 years uh, of, you know, decent labor, that just makes more economic sense. It makes more economic sense to do that. Uh, I know it's a horrible way of treating human beings, just uh, sheer economics, but that's slavery for you. And with the rise of slavery come new laws. Uh, new laws are needed throughout the colonies about the status of slaves. Basically, what slaves can and cannot do, particularly after Bacon's Rebellion, they're afraid of slaves interacting too much with other slaves, they're afraid of rebellions, they're afraid of them interacting too much with, other, uh, with poor white people. And so these new laws, they really codify slave inferiority. Uh, I use the term slave inferiority. Basically, it becomes this default of if one is considered to be black, they're considered to be a slave and considered to be lesser. Early on in the colonies, those three terms were not synonymous. Um, well, slave and black was, but lesser is not necessarily. Um, not all black people in the colonies before this time period were slaves. In fact, a lot of the slaves, uh, who, people who came over as slaves, eventually got their freedom, and then they you know, would set up their own places. I think I told you about how a, a black man would be more likely to marry a white woman than a black woman in this time period early on, not, not by the time we get to the 1770s. But basically this new set of laws, starting in the 1700s, but by the time we get to 1776, it's everywhere, through these various colonies, that basically are trying to say that, look, black people are lesser, black people are, you know, the defaults, if you see a black person, you can assume that they're a slave, and that they're therefore le a lesser member of society, not even a full citizen. That was not the case beforehand. Um, you know, there you have black, middle, and even a few upper-class black people in places like South Carolina, which we'll get into later. Uh, this also has since tried to use a sense of equality between upper and lower uh, white classes. Another thing you need to keep in uh, keep in your mind is that the upper classes are terrified of a, a lower-class uprising, and so they try to find ways of solidarity with poor white people. And honestly, for lack of a better term, something like white supremacy becomes kind of the default. This idea that, hey, because we're white, rich or poor, we're somewhat better. And it's kind of a sense of solidarity within the classes themselves. Now, I should iterate, there's really not that much of a feeling of unity between the colonies themselves. Part of that has to do with communication. Uh, there's not a ton of communication in between the colonies all that much. Uh, the lifestyles are very different. And also, mainly the colonies feel more uh, affinity towards Britain than they do their other colonies. These colonies were made for very different reasons. Like, something like Maryland was made as a haven for Catholics, as opposed to, you know, Georgia, which was a, a prison colony. As opposed to Massachusetts, which was like a, a haven for religious radicals. They really don't have that much in common. They don't really have that much in common. And as such, it's much more common for an individual living in these places to have a sense of solidarity like with their individual colony and then with the mother country, but not necessarily the other colonies because they don't feel like they have that much to do with them. And there's very limited trade in between the two of them. Now, because I like to talk about religion, we're talking about religion for a second, we're talking about the Great Awakening. Now, there have been four, possibly five, Great Awakenings in the U.S. history. In U.S. history, we've had a handful of Great Awakenings. We're going to talk about two of them. We're going to talk about the first two of them. We're going to talk about one this week. We'll talk about the second one when we talk about Andrew Jackson. But we kind of alluded to the Great Awakening when I talked about somebody like Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this idea that the frozen chosen, you know, this idea that you are predestined from birth and there's really nothing you can do about it, uh, that rhetoric is kind of going away. They're using much more emotive language. Um, it's not quite the you choose God, like, you know, religious free agent language of the Second Great Awakening and modern Protestantism. But it's putting way more onus on the individual. Like, 
remember how I said earlier, like if you were predestined, you couldn't know it, but like maybe God might tip his hand. Well, now they're saying maybe you might feel it. Maybe you'll have an emotional level. Maybe you'll feel this sense of revival. Uh, revival is, you know, whenever we talk about this, we'll talk about revivals. I'm sure some of you are familiar with revivals as a religious concept. It's a very American religious concept, and it's still in its proto-phase in this time period. This is not the, the modern revival, the modern, quote-unquote, getting saved, if we could use modern-day vernacular. This is, this is the old talk of revival. This idea that you're going to feel something within yourself, like this idea that you're going to feel emotion from God, that basically says God has chosen you. Um... This Great Awakening really begins in England. It really begins in England with guys like John Wesley. Now, if you're Methodist, you've definitely heard of John Wesley. John Wesley is the modern of the modern Methodist church. Actually, of any Methodist church. Uh, basically, he, he, he describes this type of uh, religious experience. Where basically, it, it's not quite the old, like, I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart thing, which you may be familiar with. It's more just like he, he claims that he was like praying and all of a sudden he felt like the peace of God come over him. And it was, it was more of an emotional thing. It, it wasn't just that he logically felt that like, you know, God loved him or whatever. It was just more like he felt it in his emotion. Felt it in his emotion. Uh, Wesley preaches at first in England. He does ultimately come over to the new world. And when he comes over to the new world, other preachers join him. Other preachers joining, not all Methodists, but other revivals start happening throughout the country. And this idea that you're having religious revivals, traveling preachers, this is a huge difference than the established churches. Uh, this established church, you know, think about the, the places in the crucible. You know, it's, you know this neighborhood, not neighborhood, you know this community, you know this town. Everybody in this town goes to the same church. You have the same pastor who's been there for decades. You know, basically having very instructional preaching. And now they're switching to this traveling preaching modern, where the preacher might come in for a week or two, give a very emotional, uh, emotional, emotional sermon. You know, not really appeal to your intellect, appeal to your uh, feelings. Uh, maybe not talk, I mean, they do talk about the Bible, but it's, you know, it's not just the Bible, it's also like, how does one feel? You know, how, how do you feel God and your emotions? That sort of vernacular, that sort of talk. And this, this model becomes very popular within the United States. In fact, it's one of the first times where you start having a sense of solidarity within the colonies is because these pastors are going, they're going cross-colony. They're going, you know, from colony to colony, preaching the same sort of message, preaching the same sort of message. And they begin to, Wesley doesn't do it as much as people like Whitfield do, but they start tailing their message to the American mindset. You start having this, Early America mindset, this, this idea that, you know, the colonies, they're not just, you know, these little dollops of Britain. There's a sense of solidarity. There's something about going out into the world, going out, traveling, making your own self. That's very, very, uh, it's, it's a strong tie within the colonies. It's not an exaggeration to say that the American Revolution would not have happened without the Great Awakening. That is, that is 100%. Because all of a sudden, even though it, there's the first crack in the predestination thing, but it puts way more emphasis upon the individual. This also really becomes popular in the southern colonies because they're less likely to have established churches and towns like the New England colonies do. And this idea that, you know what, maybe you don't necessarily need to go to an established church. Maybe you have a traveling preacher. Maybe you read your Bible. Uh, that, that becomes another thing. This idea that maybe read one's Bible and not just understand it intellectually, but feel it emotionally. You know, feel the words speak to you, in a sense. If you go to a church, you might hear that type of language. Well, the modern-day Protestant church. I'm not sure what the Catholics say. If you're Catholic, let me know. Now, this also kind of dovetails with the Enlightenment. Uh, the Enlightenment uh, actually is another thing that starts out in Europe, but it becomes ingrained into, the, uh, into American traits of the New World. Uh, the Enlightenment is a lot of different things. I'm sure you, you learned about it in high school, you know, John Locke, all that good stuff. Uh, more questioning about the old system of doing things, all right? They're starting to question things a lot more, starting to question why do we do what we do? This is not full-blown atheism, all right? It's not full-blown atheism, not yet, but more like deism. I talked about deism a little bit before. 
Uh, Deism is a belief system that there is a God, except he's very far removed. Um, the, the metaphor they use is like God's like a watchmaker. Like God made the world, he made all the intricate systems, but once the watchmaker makes the watch, they don't touch it. They just stand back and let it do. Uh, most of the founding fathers are deist in some form or fashion. Uh, there are a couple of the founding fathers who are a bit more zealous, a bit more Great Awakening-y. By the way, the Great Awakening, uh, 1730s, 1740s, somewhere in there. It's about 30 years before the American Revolution. Enlightenment, eh, a little bit before that, but it's still an ongoing undercurrent. Uh, most of the founding fathers, though, your George Washington's, particularly your Thomas Jefferson, uh, they're deists. They, they believe in God, but they don't believe in a God that's very hands-on. Uh, they don't believe much in divine intervention. They don't think too much about, like, God's going to come down and make something happen or not make something happen. Uh, but most of the Founding Fathers are also highly uh, influenced by the Enlightenment. You know, if you look at the rhetoric, something like the Declaration of Independence, that's why I say that uh, Thomas Jefferson is probably the best symbol of this. Jefferson is a great thinker. He, he's very well read. He, um, you know, he establishes a university pretty much out of his, out of his backyard, becomes the University of Virginia. Um, the books, he, his library, he donates to Congress that becomes a library of Congress. Very much in this Enlightenment ideals, when he writes the Declaration of Independence, he's strongly looking at Locke and things like that about the nature of government. But the thing is, the only reason he's able to accomplish so much is that he has this econ an economic freedom uh, because of slavery. Um, Jefferson inherits a ton of money and a ton of slaves. Like Monticello is a working slave plantation. And he mainly inherits this, but he also buys some himself. And he makes some with Sally Hemings. He does free them later. We'll talk about that later, I guess. Maybe in class we'll talk about that. But you have this kind of brewing, okay? The things that are brewing. Mortality rate's going down. I'm just kind of rehashing for you. They're making a lot more money. Slavery has become super ingrained in the American society. There is a great awakening, which is calling, having a sense of solidarity between the colonies, a kind of religious faith, and also really not putting as much onus on the collective, but on the individual, particularly emotion. And also you have the enlightenment of questioning things, why are things what they are. It's only a matter of time that uh, something's going to throw it off. Now, there are still plenty of issues in the New World. Uh, slavery is a big one, class issues, class struggles, but land is the big one. Land is the big one, like we talked about earlier when we talked about Bacon's Rebellion. That issue of good land never really goes away. All right, The issue of basically, like, we want land, land is seemingly endless in the New World. But the lower classes still want to spread out. They want to go out and become wealthy on their own terms. Uh, both of these citizens, I should mention, they, they still view themselves as British, and they were dependent upon their mother country for survival. But, but like I said, an American identity is looming. Now, these individuals really want to go westward. They really want to go westward. You know, Appalachian Mountains, past Appalachian Mountains. Uh, this is not California. Think like Kentucky. Think like Ohio. Think the Great Lakes. In fact, definitely think the Great Lakes, because that's where the issue is going to arise. Uh, a lot of these folks want to go westward. They want to like start farming and doing things in the Great Lakes region which upsets some people who were there. I mean, of course, the Native Americans, but also the French. Uh, the French had established New France quite a while before. Uh, the New France pretty much stretched from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River. Uh, the French colonies were different than the American colonies. They're not doing as much, like, settling. They're not bringing huge populations. They're mainly bringing in, like, traders and also um, religious individuals. They mainly have a series of forts. They mainly have a series of forts. They have very little towns. They also have very little towns. Also, you should you need to realize that like Canada is also like American, sorry, is English colonies too, and that's kind of getting into the mix as well. So the French who have a series of forts throughout the Great Lakes region, uh, they are kind of upset whenever like British colonists start coming in their way. They're trying to settle it. Uh, there's some skirmishes that start happening. Uh, war is bound to happen because the French are attacking the British colonists. The, the British say, you can't attack our colonists. It becomes a thing. It becomes known as the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, or the latter part of the War of Austrian Succession, which is kind of technically incorrect. But look, this is a very big, complicated war that it would take me like 50 minutes in a flow chart to explain. Um, it's a giant cluster fudge. 
Look, the European side of the conflict doesn't matter. Just know it's a million different European countries going up against each other and, like, Spain's involved. Like, everybody's involved, okay? Everybody's involved. What you need to know is this. It lasts for about seven years. It's really effing expensive. And a bunch of land gets obtained by the British. A bunch of land gets obtained by the British. Uh, You know, the Spanish now get New Orleans. France pretty much gets out of the New World. French pretty much gets out of the New World for now. Um, it gets very complicated because then they come back and they just get New Orleans. But then they sell it to the Americans. It's a, it's a thing. But just know for right now, for right now, New France is out of the colony game in North America. They're out. And they pretty much split their possessions between England and Spain. Spain gets New Orleans. England gets the northern stuff. Now, at first... Um, you know, the Americans are happy. The colonists are happy. Like, hey, sweet, awesome land. Britain doesn't want to do that. Britain's like, hey, let's just leave it to the Native Americans. Well, let's give it to the Native Americans. They set the line of demarcation, basically being uh, the Appalachian Mountains, can't go west of the Appalachian Mountains. They say pretty much explicitly, white people cannot go west of the Appalachian Mountains. Leave uh, Leave it for the Native Americans. And the war does cost a ton of money. The war costs a ton of money, and they have to pay for it in taxes. Now, England not letting uh, English colonists have this new land pisses a lot of people off. Also, the taxes start making people mad. The taxes themselves aren't that high. Uh, It's the idea, though, that they've never really been taxed before. Uh, The colonies had never really been taxed before. There was a system of salutary neglect where basically, like, they need to tax them, but they don't tax them. And so, you know this part, okay, they, they start taxing the colonists, the colonists don't like it, blah, 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 blah. This is where the war begins in earnest. American Revolution starts happening. Most of the rebels are in places like Boston, all right? Most of the, places, most of the rebels are in places which aren't as immediately in, uh, dependent upon Britain. Uh, your more established cities are more likely to be a bit more rebellious. Um, ironically, most of the loyalists are in the South. The South tends to be a bit more loyalist than um, than the North does, you know, because of a lot of uh, contracts of Britain, a lot of interlap there. I'm very much oversimplified because I need to get to the movie already. Uh, the war itself, pretty straightforward. It's a pretty straightforward war. I'm not going to rehash the American Revolution for you. Well, I will, but not really. Uh, Washington's given demand. The, the colony struggle gets supplies, and the British also don't send their bo- their best troops. Uh, Britain does send some troops. They send their best troops, though, to a place like uh, like India. Uh, the people that are sent to America, they're not bad, but they're not they're not the greatest. They also send a lot of Hessians and stuff, which uh, they're just German mercenaries. So, uh, what is also happening is that France and England are also having a little bit of a kerfuffle as well. That net, that never changes. And the main reason why America wins the American Revolution is because number one. Um, France starts supporting the Americans, mainly to screw over the British. And the British decide that keeping America isn't worth it. Uh, the, the British decide that keeping America isn't worth it. They have India. They're like, look, this is a lot of trouble. We're still going to have, like, you know, trading partnerships with them because who else are they going to sell to? So if they just don't want nothing to do with us and we're still going to get the stuff, less administrative overhead for us, this is wonderful. We are going to get out. And also France is screwing them over. I should definitely mention that France is screwing them over. I should also mention, though, when we're talking about the American Revolution, before we get into the actual movie, uh, Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Lord Dunmore's proclamation, because I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Lord Dunmore's proclamation, he is the the royal governor of Virginia. Uh, This is a major psychological weapon used against the slaveholding elite in the South. Um, basically, Lord Dunmore makes a proclamation saying that, hey, if you're a slave who rises up against your master to fight for the British, uh, we will give you your freedom. We will give you your freedom. We guarantee you your freedom. If you fight for us, we'll give you freedom. Now, this is not a very large number. It's more of a psychological weapon. Uh, if you look at the rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence and other revolutionary documents, uh, one of their biggest attacks against Britain is saying that the British are making us slaves and slaves are the worst things to be. And now basically the British are using the fear of slavery and a slave uprising in the United States to try to enforce compliance. This is not really done for humanitarian reasons. Um, <laughs> there's a case in England a little bit earlier called Somerset versus Stuart. 
this forbids slavery in England, like in all of Great Britain, uh, because slavery was seen as a threat to the social order, probably the financial order. Uh, slavery is needed. Okay, you never need slavery, but slavery is most often implemented in places where, like, there's not a large lower class, or you don't have like a, a real issue with mobility or conflict. Um, England had too many laborers. England had too many laborers. They had too much of an underclass. And they're afraid by bringing in slavery, uh, it would upset them. You might have a, a revolution on their hand because basically you're going to put a lot of underclass people out of work. So Somerset versus Stewart forbade any slavery on English soil. Like, if a slave stepped on English soil, they were automatically freed. And so England does this. Like I said, England's kind of early to the abolition game. I mean, yes, there are some actual abolitionists who talk about humanitarian reasons. But, like, the main reason why they implement it, though, is economic. They're not humanitarian. They're basically trying to preserve their own economic system. Anyway, the British promise slaves who rebel against their master's freedom if they fight for the British. Um, and believe it or not, the British are actually as good as their word. Um, Lord Dunmore, after the war is over, does demand that they free the, uh, the, you know, the, the people who fought, the, the slaves who fought, the former slaves who fought for the British. And they do send them to places like Canada or Sierra Leone. Um, not Sierra Leone, that's, that's French, my bad. But they, they send them like, to Canada, uh, Barbados. I get Barbados out of Sierra Leone. My bad. But they send them to other places. So, like, yeah, like, the British do well by them. The reason I mention that is in the movie, um, they say it's the Americans who promise slaves their freedom, and that never happens. That never even gets remotely close from happening. Uh, if the Americans actually did do that, that would cause a riot, like a serious riot. So now let's get to the movie. 2000's The Patriot. 2000's The Patriot. Now this movie exists for one reason and one reason alone. A little movie that came out in 1995 called Braveheart. Uh, Braveheart, if you're unfamiliar, is a story of William Wallace, a Scottish folk hero. It starred Mel Gibson. Um, crazy successful. That was a crazy successful movie. Uh, made a mint at the box office. One best picture. Wasn't really historical wasn't really historical. I mean, William Wallace is a historical figure, but the rebellion's very, very different than that. In fact, they take a lot of liberties with it, like an absurd amount of liberties. In fact, Scottish people were kind of upset by what they did, but it makes a good story. Um, it's very, seem, it seems to resonate very strongly within certain corners of American society, particularly masculinity. All right, we're going to talk about that for a while. Masculinity is something that definitely comes up when you talk about this movie. Uh, Braveheart especially, but also with The Patriot. Uh, they both star Mel Gibson. Uh, they're both very similar in form and function. Basically, the idea of a guy fighting for rebellion, you know, freedom, and all that good stuff. But uh, we'll talk about this more in class, but this movie, particularly with Braveheart, seems to resonate in this idea that American masculinity has been under attack. The idea that, you know, after women's liberation and civil rights and all this stuff, the idea that traditional quote-unquote masculinity is under attack, has become too feminized, and Americans need to come out against it. You know, men need to come out against it. Uh, particularly in, like, conservative and even religious circles. Uh, the movie Braveheart, which, by the way, very violent movie. Like, it's a hard R-rated movie. Yet, um, look, I'll just tell something from my own life. Uh, there were Braveheart Bible studies. I'm not making that up. Like, I never went to one because I was a little too young. But, like, I remember at, like, at my parents' church, they had a, like, a six-week-long series of Braveheart for the men, where basically the men watched Braveheart clips, and they talked about how that was, like, true biblical masculinity, even though William Wiles is not in the Bible and has nothing to do with the Bible, and they really, like... I read the literature later. Like they, they really shoehorn some Bible references in, but but still, this is the idea that like you know this is the way that masculinity should be, and, and it was seen as like a general call to action. All right, Braveheart was uh, it's kind of a backlash against the '90s. You know, the anti-rent uh, rent is the uh, the sorry the, the musical rent that was very popular but was also seen as very feminizing mainly anti-Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton was very disliked for being a quote-unquote uh, feminine figure, the idea that, oh, his wife rules him, he's not, like, he's not a good masculine man, that sort of idea. 
And Braveheart was stupid popular within the United States. I cannot hear that enough. Really seemed to resonate with like the more conservative circles, religious circles, masculinity circles. And it was only it was only logical and natural that an American version of Braveheart would come out. You know, that basically, you know, we did this one about Scotland, but you know what? Let's make one about America. We need to make the American version of Braveheart. And it becomes pretty simple about what they're going to do on. They're going to do about the American Revolution. All right, the American Revolution, pretty logical source. You know, it's when we get our independence from England. Uh, problem is, how do we separate it from all the other American Revolution movies? American Revolution been done quite a bit. Uh, American Revolution is, was, for a long while, uh, one of the more common, you know, ideas for, uh, for movies. Uh, the problem is, they really go into what I like to call the buckles and breeches version. Where basically it's like, you know, they wear the three-corner hats and they have the shoes with the buckles on them. And they just talk about, it's very, very reverent, very, um, very loving. Uh, there's a word I'm going to use a lot, deification. Uh, deification means basing an individual into a god. Uh, probably the more accurate term, though, is apotheosis, which is basically turning a human being into a god. Uh, for instance, if you go to the Capitol building, there's a mural on the top of the dome called the Apotheosis of Washington, which shows George Washington being turned into a god. And that's something we say about the American Revolution, is that these, these figures, these names, you know, the, the money people, they have become more than their actual selves. They have become like symbols. You know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton now. We'll talk about Hamilton a little bit more next week. Hint. Uh, and about what movie's coming out the next week. I'm talking about Hamilton. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of it. Nathan Hale. I regret I have one life to live for my country. Benjamin Franklin. All these guys are viewed as demigods almost, more than they actually are. And so how are we going to kind of retread this story into like a He-Man action flick? You know, like... How are we going to do that? Likewise, uh, part of the appeal of Braveheart was a general mistrust of government. Uh, that, that was one thing of the conservatives in the 90s. They, they do not trust the federal government. So how are we going to make a movie where the federal government or the predecessor to the federal government, the direct descendant, you know, the direct ancestor of the federal government is the hero. And now they're kind of, oh, how are we going to get into that? You know, the people who like Braveheart typically don't like the federal government. How are we going to show that in this movie? And then there are also issues of justification. Are we justified in making this movie, this He-Man action flick, you know, the, the American version of Braveheart? Uh, why do we need to make this? But the big story is who's going to be the hero? I mean, there is no single William Wallace-type hero for the American Revolution. I mean, yes, we have George Washington. George Washington is probably the most mythological figure in American history, but how do you tell a larger-than-life Braveheart story with a guy who's already larger than life? Plus, hate to be rude, the historical record of what Washington actually does during the American Revolution is kind of boring. It's kind of administrative. Um, general generals, like head generals, don't do too much fighting. They're mainly like behind lines and you know doing administrative business. Um, Eisenhower, for instance, in World War II, swings most of it in London. Fairly safe. I mean, generals are generally not on the front. So, you know, a, a He-Man action flick of George Washington writing his letters is not going to be, like, the most uh, boring one. You know, there's... There, it's, it's You're not going to have many incredibly violent action scenes whenever, like, hmm, do we need more supply lines? Yeah, we probably do. Well, let's write a letter to South Carolina and ask for some stuff. That's... You can make it up, but he's already a larger-than-life figure, and it just doesn't lend itself to it. So maybe they pick another figure. Maybe they pick another figure. Well, none really exist. None really exists of, like, a He-Man action figure. Uh, the one they end up kind of coming up with is a composite of several South Carolinians. Uh, Mel Gibson's character... Uh, he's a composite of several different South Carolinians, most notably Francis Marion, who's known as the Swamp Fox. Uh, the guy's name in this movie is Martin. Uh, Mel Gibson's character is named Benjamin Martin. Uh, he, Martin is pretty much the Swamp Fox. There, there are some differences 
there are definitely some changes between uh, Martin and Marion. In fact, we're talking about that when we talk about the controversy of film. But this is a, a historical character. As opposed to William Wallace, who was a historical figure in Scotland, they just make up this guy. Benjamin Martin. They make him in South Carolina, I guess, so he could be like the Swamp Fox. Uh, Swamp Fox himself is a bit more of a controversial figure. Um, Swamp Fox is a great fighter for the Americans, but he's also really brutal to people, like Indians. Like he's really rough against Native Americans, and he's also not very nice to slaves, which we'll talk about that in a second. So, all right, so we, we got this movie. It's written by the guy who did Saving Private Ryan, who that's another 90s, uh, he later does, well, no, sorry, he earlier did Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that's another great 90s uh, masculinity <laughs> idea, ideal. But the person who directs this movie is Roland Emmerich. Uh, Roland Emmerich is a big action movie guy. Uh, his best known film is Independence Day, which if you don't know Independence Day, because it came out after you were born, it's a movie where aliens blow up the White House. And basically, it's Will Smith's first big leading role. He's not a real sentimental guy. He makes big, dumb action movies. He's also German, which is whatever, but it's interesting they pick a German guy to be in charge, you know, direct this, like, steeped-in-American masculinity movie. Also, uh, Mel Gibson is Australian. Uh, Mel Gibson is Australian. Um, we'll talk about Mel Gibson whenever we have class again. Whenever we have our discussion, Mel Gibson is very much a, a He-Man action figure type, but he's also Australian. And actually, the second biggest part is another Australian. Uh, that'd be Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger plays uh, Mel Gibson's oldest son in this movie. Heath Ledger, also Australian. So we got a movie with about America, based off of a very popular movie about a Scottish dude, Directed by a German dude and starring two Australians. America. Yes, indeed. But then there comes to the main issue, which is how do we tell this story? You know, how do we retread this story, tell it in kind of an interesting way? There's different ways of doing it. Uh, for instance, you know, I'll talk about the musical Hamilton for a second. Uh, the, the musical Hamilton was based off of a book about Alexander Hamilton it condenses a lot of stuff. It condenses a lot of stuff about Hamilton, but most of it is fairly true. Most of it is fairly accurate. Uh, you know, the idea, the way that Hamilton depicts the American Revolution, the show, uh, you know, basically that, you know, Washington is mainly doing administrative stuff. That's fine. Mainly focusing on, on uh, you know, the character of Hamilton. It, it, yes, it does. It condenses, but it never straight makes up something, if that makes sense. Uh, another th another common way of doing it is the Johnny Tremaine style. Johnny Tremaine, um, that's a book that you I had to read as a required some uh, required reading when I was in elementary school. I don't think you had to read it. It's kind of an older book about a he's a kid growing up in Boston who's a silversmith. Well, he's a silversmith's apprentice, and he kind of meets every you know historical figure. Like he runs into Paul Revere, and he's friends with Sam Adams. This idea being that like these are secondary characters who like you know they're they're kind of in the background you know they're they're uh, staying in the shadows of those who are actually doing things. Um, so even though Americans love the American Revolution, uh, it's kind of hard to do a single narrative. So how do we do that? How do we how do we do this? You know, do you do the condensing thing? Do you do a secondary figure thing? Or do you do what the Patriot does, which is make things up? Make your character a major figure in the war and totally make up stuff. That's what happens. So I'm probably going to give you all a couple clips. Uh, Mel Gibson plays a guy by the name of Benjamin Martin, who is a South Carolina plantation owner who tries to stay out of the war before getting sucked in. Basically, he's like, oh, I don't want to fight anymore. His backstory is that he was involved in the French and Indian War and he has PTSD kind of shell-shocked from its, from its savagery. However, he, but he's since uh, gotten married, had a bunch of kids, his wife died, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm just going to like stay down in South Carolina. Okay, that alone, there weren't too many of those individuals who existed in South Carolina. Uh, not a ton of veterans of the French and Indian War in South Carolina just because of where the war was, but whatever, we can overlook that. The other thing they do, which is interesting for 20 years ago, 21 years ago, Okay, Bill Gibson's character is the hero of the film. I mentioned he's a plantation owner. He is also a slave owner. Like, this is probably the last time I can think in American cinema history 
where the slave owner is a hero. Like, it's kind of keeping up the idea of the happy slaves. Uh, the slaves that Martin has are very loyal to him. They provide haven for his children in the Sea Islands. I'm not sure why even they brought in that very accurate detail. Oh, let me talk about that real quick. Uh, most rice plantations, uh, they are off on the Sea Islands because rice has grown a lot of water. Uh, they're on the coastal islands of South Carolina. Uh, most of those slaves exist in what's called the, the task system, where basically the master doesn't come only maybe once a week or once every other week, gives them a list of tasks to do, and then pretty much slaves are left by themselves. And so you also have communities of people who aren't slaves, but like people who've escaped from slavery or, you know, whatever, uh, who live in the Sea Islands of South Carolina. They're called the Gullah. They're still around. I love researching them. Whenever I went on my honeymoon to Charleston, I made sure to check out the Gullah people. Um, the Gullah are in the movie for some reason. I'm not sure why they brought in that accurate detail, but it shows the Gullah and mainly the slaves providing haven for Martin's children and being quite happy about it, being loyal to him, even though he's their slave master. Now, to be fair, they never show Mel Gibson beating his slaves or anything like that, but it's still kind of weird for the year 2000 of having the, the hero of the film be a clear slave owner. And, like, I don't even know what type of... It's just a farm? It's not even a plantation, really? I mean, I guess it's big enough to be a South Carolina plantation, but, like, as I recall, he doesn't grow one crop. He's, like, he makes a rocking chair, I know, at one point, but, like, it's not like it's clearly a rice plantation or something, but... Whatever, okay, we, we have our hero, our, our slave-holding hero, who hears about the revolution, you know, he goes to Charleston because he's a member of the South Carolina uh, Congress, you know, the, South, the administrative body, and he says, I don't want to get involved in this, and they're like, er, okay, well, we want to anyway, which is also inaccurate because South Carolina was one of the more loyal ones, but uh, whatever, doesn't matter, uh, because every movie needs a villain. All right, so every movie needs a villain. So if they're going to make up the perfect hero who is weird and problematic, they're going to make up the perfect villain. And they do with Dragoon Tavington, uh, played by Draco Malfoy's dad, actor by the name of Jason Isaacs, who's a British dude known for being the bad guy. If you ever need a guy to be a bad guy, you're probably going to get Jason Isaacs. Like I said, he's Draco's dad and, and Harry Potter. I know who you know who he is. He is over the top of this movie in sheer evilness. Um, a dragoon is a type of, like, mounted uh, soldier. They generally have guns and they ride horses. So, like, somebody rides a gun with a horse. Uh, they're generally on an upper class and just regular horsemen. Horses are so expensive. There are not a ton of dragoons during the American Revolution, but there are some. And, like, he's somewhat based on a, on a dragoon named Tarleton. There is a dragoon by the name of Tarleton who fights in the American Revolution. He's a very young man in this time period. Um, Jason Isaac's character is, is a bit middle-aged. But um, Tarleton, he's like in his 20s. He's known for being kind of mean to rebels, um, very elitist and snooty, but not brutal. Like, in the movie, like, Tavington is mean for no reason. Like, okay, the, the reason that Mel Gibson gets invo involved in the fighting and, and for any reason in this movie is because um, Jason Isaac's character shoots his son. Basically, his son is like, ah, rabble, rabble, and kills his son. And Mel Gibson's like, no! And now he's fighting for the American Revolution because his ev this evil bastard killed his, his son. And, and likewise, probably the most villainous thing that he does is he locks an entire community into, sorry, the dr evil dragoon, who, dragoons, whatever. Uh, he, he locks the entire town into a church, including women and children, and burns the church to the ground. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, nothing remotely close to that happens in the American Revolution. Like, you need to understand, there is nothing like that in the American Revolution whatsoever. It's, it, it, it's, it's just mean for mean's sake. Um, like, later on, we're, we're not going to watch the Django Unchained, but y'all are familiar with Django Unchained, I hope. But, like, so much of the stuff in Django Unchained, like... It doesn't make sense. It's so over the top, but I get it's an over the top movie. It's Quentin Tarantino. But this one's trying to be like very sentimental at the same time because it's very schmaltzy about like how much this guy loves his country and he loves his kids. You know, it's this hero story. Like this is supposed to be like American bait, but they really lose all sense of reality. Like the way that the revolution happens in this movie is just bonkers. 
it, it, it makes no sense if you think about it for more than a second, even with a historical record. Like, there's so much stuff in this, which, like, if you know even a little bit about the American Revolution, it makes no sense. Uh, particularly because they make Mel Gibson's character, like, very important. Like, all of a sudden, he's fighting Cornwallis single-handedly, which would never, ever, ever happen. They're just making stuff up to be, like, way more macho and way more action-packed, which I get it's a movie, but still, when you're when you're treating with something that already has such a sense of deification and glorification, it's interesting they do that. Uh, the other thing I do want to mention is they have a... Uh, there's a black character in this, in this movie... Uh, he is a slave himself who basically is sent to fight in his master's stead. They don't really do that too much in the American Revolution, but okay, whatever, That why not? But then he learns later on that basically, oh, if you fight for the revolution, you're a slave, you're free. It never happens. No, like, nothing remotely close to that happens. The only thing that happens is Lord Dunmore's proclamation, which is on the British side, but still, whatever. So, th that's the movie itself. It, it ends, uh, you know, Heath Ledger dies. So Mel Gibson loses another son, and he's going to give up, but he, he, he re-sows the flag, and he comes back, and I'll give you all a clip where he pretty much almost stabs a guy with the American flag. That's, that's the William Wallace scene at the end, and then, of course, America wins the revolution, and Mel Gibson marries his wife's sister, and they go back. Whatever. It's a very schmaltzy movie, but there's some questions I want you to think about. First thing I want you to think about is the issue of masculinity. The issue of masculinity, which is something that is... Like, you know, last week was the week about femininity, and uh, not really quite feminism, but, like, what does it mean to be a woman in this time period? And what does it say about, you know, when it's written? Uh, talk about masculinity. You know, uh, talk about the trait of masculinity in the United States, in American society, what is viewed as masculine, what is viewed as macho, what is not. Uh, also, what is patriotism? What is patriotism? Uh, very interesting thing about this film is that even though it's called The Patriot, um, Mel Gibson doesn't seem too patriotic. In fact, there's a, there's a thing as Roger Ebert who said basically, uh, yeah, this film should have been called The Family Man because pretty much Mel Gibson doesn't really seem to care about the rhetoric or flirting his own country. It's like my son was killed and then you killed my other son. It's now a revenge story against this evil, evil bastard dragoon. So talk about what does it mean to be a patriot? Uh, you know, could one be considered a patriot? Uh, there's another thing. There's a YouTube clip I'm going to put up from The Simpsons. Actually, predates this film, uh, basically uh, parodying the Mel Gibson movies. Uh, it's basically Mel Gibson doing Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which you'll need to know that. But basically, even though this cartoon predates The Patriot, it pretty much is showing what The Patriot would become. Like this over-the-top, violent version of a kind of traditional, uh, boring American story. And what is it about this nature of violence and over-the-topness that really appeals to, like, not just masculinity, but American identity? So, be thinking about that. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll try to do something for y'all, maybe an online discussion board or something, but we'll get that straight. So, for that, this is Dr. Helly for History 340, wishing you a good one.